Hi, and welcome to another episode of The Power Current with me, your host, Chris Berry. The Power Current is produced by Clear Commodity Network. My guest today is Ernest Shader. In addition to being a good friend of mine, Ernest is a senior correspondent for Reuters covering the green energy transition and the minerals that undergird it. He previously covered the U.S. shale oil revolution, politics, and the environment, and held roles at the Associated Press and Bangor Daily News. He's also the author of the terrific new book, The War Below, Lithium, Copper, and the Global Battle to Power Our Lives. Our discussion of the book is the subject of today's podcast. We discuss a host of questions, but really try to answer one specifically. What are the pragmatic choices we as a society are willing to make in order to enable a sustainable energy transition? If you enjoyed this episode, please like and share, and we'll see you next time. Mr. Ernest Shader, welcome. Hey, it's great to be with you, Chris. Absolutely. It's great to uh, get to talk to you about what is a terrific book that you have written. Uh, Thanks. Thanks to be with you. Really excited to talk about the war below with you and the power current. Yeah, absolutely. I think, look, maybe to start, I think, you know, there's always a format for these podcasts, right? And and many people listening to this, I think, first of all, if you haven't uh, gone out and purchased this book and read it, you should. Uh, but for those of you, you know, some people will be familiar with you, some people may not. Uh, just give us a little bit about your background and how you get, got to where we are today. Sure. So uh, my day job is at Reuters, where I write about the critical minerals and mining industries. And I've been writing about this space for about five or six years. And the book really is an outgrowth of the reporting that I've been doing at Reuters in that time frame. Uh, and it builds off of my entire career. Before I wrote about critical minerals, I spent about four or five years writing about the oil and gas industry. And Reuters actually sent me to live in North Dakota. I was living there for about two years in Williston in the western part of North Dakota. Uh, so living the fracking boom and bust from a unique perspective. Um, and so the book really builds on all of that reporting and, and is a ostensibly book about energy, but really it's a book about people. It's a book about the choices that we need to make if we want an energy transition. And if we think climate change is serious, which I think most people would agree that it is, what are the decisions that we're going to make in order to get the building blocks for solar panels and wind turbines and electric vehicles? And on an even more practical level, there's a whole host of electronics nowadays that are increasingly powered by lithium-ion batteries. And those might not have anything to do with the energy transition, but still underpin our everyday lives. Things like cell phones, laptops, et cetera, et cetera. And all of these are built with critical minerals. So what I wanted to bring to the audience here is this this idea of choice. What are the choices we're willing to make if we want these products that really underpin our everyday lives? So when I, you know, read through the book, I came away with a sense of a very divided contentious debate uh, that doesn't have any any easy answers. I feel like if, if there were easy answers, we would have, have found them at this point in time. I mean, what do you think some of the, you know, and, and you speak with all sorts of people, you speak with miners, you speak with environmentalists, you speak with government officials um, very clearly. What do you think some of the main takeaways are from this book? In other words, how do we get to the other side with respect to finding pragmatic solutions? Sure. I would say the number one takeaway that I did find that maybe contrasts with my time covering oil and gas is that most of the people I talked to for the book, and indeed in my day job at Reuters, acknowledge that we need critical minerals. There's sort of a a broad understanding that lithium and copper and cobalt and nickel and rare earths are going to be needed in increasing quantities. 
the tension that I really explore in the book is a lot of folks saying, no, just not next to me or not in my backyard is the stereotypical euphemism. NIMBY, yes. Uh, And when you sort of add each of those instances up, you get to paralysis in terms of production. And I'm at pains in the book not to really inject my opinion into whether some of these projects are right or wrong or whether the opposition is good or bad or whether the supporters are fully altruistic or coming at it from other perspectives. I think it's for the reader to determine for her or himself what they think of it, because some of the oppositions to these projects are just really complex areas. You know, I I chronicle the journey of the Resolution Copper Project in Arizona, about an hour east of Phoenix, that is strongly opposed by Native American groups, especially the San Carlos Apache people, for religious and historical reasons. And I don't think it's my job as the author here to make a value judgment as to whether or not those opposition points are valid or not, but but they exist and they are here and they form a strong opposition to this key source, what could be a key source of copper. And copper anchors, really, I argue in the book, the energy transition. Uh, And so had the honor to talk with the San Carlos Apache, with the indigenous groups opposing this mine, as well as uh, the honor to talk with the company that wants to mine this copper and many other groups that are, I would say, uh, sharing different perspectives. So another thing I bring to the reader here is it's not always one side versus the other. There's multifaceted angles here. And you've got in this resolution saga, a town, Superior, Arizona, that strongly wants the mine, uh, but is very focused on doing what's best for its people. And insisting that the mining company um, basically uh, give more to the community. And so you see you, you see in the narrative here um, how there's not this complete um, acquiescence to whatever the mining industry wants. So it, sees, it shows the reader the multifaceted nature here of many, many of these complex issues and, and brings this, this idea, again, of choice, what we need to be thinking through if we want this transition. I'm glad you brought that up because I wanted to actually read just sort of a half a paragraph here from the book, and it's from the chapter entitled Sacred Space, which, Mm. of course, focuses on everything you're talking about. And so just towards the end, you write, the appeals court in June 2022 ruled for Rio and the U.S. government. Apache Stronghold had lost the battle but vowed to appeal all all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court if necessary. The saga exposed complex, deep-seated issues that needed to be addressed if the world hoped to go green. And central to all of those issues was one simple question. What exactly is good mining? And you have the word good in quotation marks. So you talked about that a little bit previously, but who ultimately decides what good mining is? I mean, is this something where I think the courts are going to figure this out for us here in North America? Or... um, does it take a whole new approach? What do you think good mining is and, and who ultimately is going to determine this? I think there is certainly going to be a judicial and a legislative partial answer to this question. And and as you mentioned in that paragraph, we talk about sort of appeals courts. There's also a legislative approach that could get steam in the U.S. Congress because there's the law that's overseen mining in the United States has been around since 1872 which is you know a very long time ago and has not obviously been updated uh, in in any sort of major way um, in recent years. So there could be, I would say, two buckets right there. Um, what I would hope, though, and, and I 
bring to the reader here in the book is the idea of good mining is is ultimately going to be up to us, like what we as consumers want. A great parallel I would see would be the apparel industry. Uh, when people discover that many of the clothes they buy from the brands that they love uh, were using sweatshops in parts of Asia, that became anathema to many consumers and still is. Um, and so you're starting mm-hmm. to see increasingly that some consumers are willing to pay more if they know uh, definitively that the clothing that they buy is ethically sourced and ethically produced. And I would say, and I, and I do argue in the book that consumers are going to increasingly want to know that the electronics that they buy, the electric vehicles that they might buy are not built with metals where children are part of the supply chain. You know, sometimes kids as young as six or seven in the Democratic Republic of the Congo can be part of the cobalt supply chain, cobalt, a key battery metal. Um, mm-hmm. They also want to know that, you know, for instance, was there lithium in that battery produced ethically when did that respect water rights? For instance, northern Chile and the Atacama, um, you know, huge desert. So you can imagine mining uses a lot of water. Is the lithium production there respectful of the water rights? Those are just sort of two examples. But it's going to increasingly require consumers to push for these metrics from their from the manufacturing industry. And and the chapter right after this uh, paragraph that you just read, Chris, um, looks at how Tiffany and company, the the jeweler, this iconic jeweler with this, you know, the light blue box, everybody knows the light blue box. Uh, It about 15, 20 years ago, helped push forward this idea of what is good mining, because Tiffany buys a lot of metals, right? You can't have an engagement ring without platinum or gold or silver, etc. And so for Tiffany, it was an existential question, right? They didn't want to support bad mining practices, but they're not a mining company. And so that chapter in The War Below dives into what steps Tiffany took, along with several other NGOs, to form what's known as IRMA, or the Initiative for Responsible Mining Assurance. And that was their way to help put their stamp from what their perspectives were on what is good mining. And IRMA was fascinating for me to explore because it actually doesn't sound like it would ever work. You have mining companies working with labor unions, working with environmental groups, working with investors, working with indigenous organizations, working with mining customers, and you put them all in the same room and you lock the door and it sounds like they'd all beat each other's throats. But what they did do over the course of about 10 years is extremely slowly get standards together for a mine, sort of what are the best practices for water usage, for making sure your neighbors know that if there's an accident at the mine, they're alerted promptly and safely, that the workers are paid a living wage, that waste is taken care of and stored uh, in a safe manner, um, and many other factors. And then the results of sort of this test are publicly displayed so that everybody in the world, including mining customers, and yes, me and you and everyone else on the street, Chris, knows exactly how a mine stacks up. And that is going to increasingly be required, I argue in the book, by a lot of not only consumers, but manufacturers. Already we've seen Ford, BMW, Microsoft, Mm -hmm. and others get behind Irma and say that this is a schema that describes for them what is good mining and what they're going to want from the mining industry. I'm glad you you brought that up. Um, it's a great segue. You know, the title is, of course, The War Below, Lithium, Copper, and the Global Battle to Power Our Lives. But you go way beyond lithium and copper. To your point, you talk about diamonds. There's a chapter in here on rare earth elements. There, there's a lot of ground you cover. I'm just curious, what? how did you figure out what to cover in the book? 
Well, it was important for me to look at sort of the broad, call it five here, lithium, copper, cobalt, nickel, and rare earths. Um, you know, the subtitle of the book, it doesn't necessarily flow when you have all five uh, in, a, in a subtitle. Lithium and <laughs> copper also, of course, are the, um, you know, I would say the workhorses um, mm-hmm. for many of these electronic gadgets and gizmos that are out there. And many of the battles do center on lithium and copper, not to reduce the import of uh, rare earths or others. Um, but it was important for me to also explore those in in the book and the narrative as well. Take rare earths, for instance. We look at the history of the Mountain Pass mine in California, mm-hmm. which has had sort of a very up and down um, saga over the course history. of its yeah, dis- yeah, sure. history related to um, ESG issues, to ownership, um, to bankruptcy, um, to its current owner, which was helped by a Chinese partner to resuscitate the site. Um, and you can't have an electric vehicle without rare earths. Um, rare earths are used to make magnets that turn power into motion. So given their import there, it was important for me to explore that. Uh, also, the geopolitics of these critical minerals, I find, interacts directly and especially um, with the uh, rare earth saga, given that China has all but cornered the entire rare earth industry. And, and I argue in the book that Part of the reason China's economy is the second largest in the world is because of its huge focus on this area. Um, so it, it does uh, also attempt to weave a lot of these together as a core part of the narrative. And the the tension in each chapter, I think, comes through and reflects back to this idea of choice. And it was important for me to not just have a geology textbook or a book for Wall Street investors, but to really show the people on all sides of this issue. Because at the end of the day, this is a story about people because this is an issue that affects all of us. Yeah, I think I think you sort of hit the nail on the head there. Every group has their own motivation for wanting to be involved in the supply chain, right? Yep. I mean, MP or Mountain Pass, which became, you know, MP Materials through the SPAC was motivated from, you know, a private equity sort of perspective. And then, sure. of course, you've got the Chinese perspective. Um, and speaking of of China, how did you in the research for this book? Did you visit China? Did you speak with Chinese miners? Did you speak with supply chain participants? I'm just curious um, if you got any sort of a let's say Asia focused perspective or background for for some of what you wrote in the book. Uh, so the book was written primarily during the pandemic, so mm. was not going to get into mainland China um, for 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 obvious reasons. Um, <laughs> you but might get in, but you won't get out. Right? Well, there's that. Yes. <laughs> Um, the, um, but, but, but China here is a huge part of the narrative given its investments, not only in MP and mountain passes, as you mentioned, um, but also its expansions into China. Uh, there's a chapter that looks at the cobalt mines in the democratic Republic of the Congo, the copper and cobalt mines that used to be controlled by Freeport McMoran. Mm-hmm. Um, but due to the company's debt load partially linked to its uh, ill-fated and ill-timed investments in oil and gas required it to sell this. And so uh, China swooped in CMOC and, and, and invested in those assets and, and today is one of the major producers there. Um, and uh, China's investments in the magnet space and the, the nickel space and the cobalt space also form part of the narrative. Um, so for, for me, it was important certainly to include it in the narrative, but I focused essentially on and 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 broadly on projects mostly in the United States on purpose because I really wanted US consumers to think through this idea of where are we willing to accept mines and are there some places that are too special to mine or if we 
don't like the idea of having a seven-year-old in the Congo, which is the starkest example, you know, mining cobalt, well, are we willing to allow it here in the United States? And if so, where would those places be? Um, because I do believe strongly that the, the, the time of the average consumer just putting his or her head in the sand and expecting to show up to a store and have a product on the shelf is, is over. Um, think about it, it was about four years ago this month, Chris, that the pandemic really started to grow full bore. And we discovered that the United States doesn't produce any masks. That was you know, the most basic medical piece of equipment that we see as crucial in order to preventing the spread of the pandemic. And yet we didn't make any in the United States. I think that really crystallized for uh, the average everyday consumer how important supply chains are. You know, supply chain used to be sort of a boring, sleepy topic. Uh, but if the pandemic taught us anything, it's like the supply chains matter. Right. And so these are well, the big things here. Yep. Yeah, sorry, didn't mean to cut you off. No, there, no, but yeah. you're, you know, you're sort of leading me leading me down the right path, every sort of question I was thinking about, you're, you're going there. And, and the next question really revolves around, you know, you talked about the, the Chinese sort of dominance along different pieces of the supply chain, whether or not it's with copper or rare earths or what have you. And much of that investment is through state-owned enterprises, right? Yes. In general. And so, you know, as we in the West try to compete with that model uh, to, the, to the extent that we can, just curious, how, how, what is the proper role of government in this transition? I know that's kind of a large question, and I'm not really <laughs> trying to box you in here, but given, given that, you know, you could, I think it's fair to say that, hey, we're here in the West, and we believe in free market economics, and the Adam Smith invisible hand, and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And you know, in China, I think in general, it is a somewhat different story. It's very top down and state directed and sort of let's think about where we want to be in 15 or 20 or 30 years, right? And so that's how they, that has been the Chinese industrial policy, at least that's my sort of perspective, right? So what do you think, I guess this is sort of a two-part question, how do we in the West compete with that? And and given the, to your point, the need to and to push forward with this energy transition, whether or not it's economic competitiveness or climate change or what have you, how do we do it? What's the proper role? Is the IRA enough? Well, one of the, the things that I, I point out many examples in the book of instances where one arm in Washington does not seem to know what another arm in Washington is doing. And and so um, the you know, short of making policy recommendations, I would say that, you know, Washington is not speaking with one voice and 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 should and can help the critical mineral sector here uh, in the United States by speaking more clearly. I mean, a great example um, is the Resolution Copper Project, which we were discussing earlier. The uh, Biden administration unapproved it after the Trump administration approved it right before leaving office. Um, and meanwhile, there was a, a related court case uh, where the San Carlos Apache and uh, their allies were fighting this mine in court. But meanwhile, in that court case, Biden, President Biden's um, Department of Justice attorneys were defending their right to give away the land to whoever they wanted. So it, it seemed to be speaking with sort of two different approaches there. Another example is in northern Minnesota, where there's the Twin Metals, Copper, and Cobalt and Nickel Project. And this would be a massive producer of those metals for the U.S. economy. Um, but their concern right there is that the type of rock that contains those metals could, if exposed to water, uh, form acid. And that, you know, what's in northern Minnesota? The Great Lakes. And if you put acid into the Great Lakes, that's not a good thing for, for obvious reasons. <laughs> um, but the um, administration, the Biden administration, uh, has basically put that whole project on ice 
Uh, and the company that wants to develop it, Twin Meadows, has been very strongly uh, saying it feels, feels it can produce these metals safely. But the tension point there uh, gets further exasperated by um, the fact that President Biden invoked the Defense Production Act to boost U.S. production of critical minerals, which just caused a lot of people to scratch their heads. And in fact, the very same day that Biden invoked the DPA, uh, an executive from this company testified before the U.S. Senate and, and basically said that the company does not feel the um, United States is a stable regulatory jurisdiction anymore, which is very, very pointed words, you know. Um, so you've got President Biden invoking the Defense Production Act at the same time he's putting on ice this major potential source of these critical minerals. Um, and, and so th- this gets back to this idea of, of choice, which for me, you know, it just formed the core of the book. I, I've learned one thing from writing this book. It's you get to ask one question of your audience. And this is the question I'm asking is what are the choices we're willing to make? Uh, and we're not speaking with one voice on this issue. Uh, and so if we're not going to produce more of these metals here domestically or at ally countries, then we have to accept the fact that some countries are willing to use them as economic weapons and use that control to um, really shape the global economy in in their image. Um, and I chronicle in the book as well some efforts, especially around rare earths and other critical minerals, the attempts by China and others to do just that. Excellent. What are the choices we are willing to make, or what are the choices we need to make to get this to get this going? Um, I want to pivot now to the role of technology again maybe this dovetails off of of the proper role of government i mean if you think about a lot of the technologies that we use and take for granted today many of them were were developed uh in us government labs and yeah. so you know you spend some time talking about direct lithium extraction um lots of lots of of interesting technologies in the battery business sort of underway as well um and it's not all chinese right i mean i think that's the good news what do you think the proper role or, or the most impactful role for technology is in this transition? Well, I'm a technology nerd at heart. So I'm fascinated by direct lithium extraction, um, as well as battery chemistries and other efforts to uh, really turbocharge the critical mineral space. Um, a quick primer for direct lithium extraction or DLE is, is that it, it attempts or is aimed to filter out lithium from salty deposits of brine, brine basically being like a salty water. And this, these are found in many places across the world, most commonly in northern Chile, parts of Argentina and Bolivia, um, parts of the United States, parts of Germany. Um, and the goal there is if you can take this brine, which contains a lot of minerals sort of swirled in, and you can just extract the lithium, then you could then have a, um, a fast, efficient way to produce lithium and you don't have to have a giant hole in the ground uh, and you wouldn't have to use large evaporation ponds, uh, which are the two main ways to produce lithium today. Uh, but salt, uh, lithium is a salt and salt corrodes. Uh, lithium is also a very social creature. It likes to hang out with its friends, so it can be very hard to separate it from that brine. And so there have been many companies that have been trying for years to do this at a commercial scale without the use of other equipment or ponds, and, and none so far have succeeded. And so the book chronicles the history of the direct lithium extraction space, including the gentleman who helped invent an early type of DLE at Dow Chemical several decades ago, um, and as well as tracks the attempts by several tech developers to deploy this technology, including one who goes to Bolivia, which has one of the world's largest uh, lithium resources there. And so it tracks that. 
So all that being said, it's it's a fascinating space. And if the technology can work, it can open up huge brine deposits across the world. And even more importantly, really small ones that could be tapped just for their lithium. So you're not really affecting the brine or the water table because you re-inject the brine after you take out the lithium. And then you can produce this critical battery metal that can be sold uh, for use for electrification. So it has huge ramifications for the oil and gas industry, for instance, because produced water contains trace amounts of lithium. So you can think what, this is why an Exxon uh, mobile is getting into the space right now, in part because of that potential. Um, so that that's one key way that we explore in the book how technology is, is poised to make a huge advancements to how we think of critical minerals. I'm curious to what it could mean for the production of other critical minerals out there. Um, and I think as the technology advances in the next few years, we'll learn more there. Um, but it would be a huge impact on, as I mentioned, not only domestic production, but sort of how we think about extraction. Because the, right now, I mean, there's no way around the fact that mining is loud, it's intrusive, it's dirty. You literally dig a hole in the ground. It can be hundreds of feet deep, hundreds of feet across. You have tons of waste. You change the landscape for generations. And if just in the lithium space, you can alter that dynamic, well, you can think of the huge potential there for production. And so you, I want to come back to your experience covering um, the shale, the oil and gas business. And you talked briefly when we, when we kicked off, you talked about some of the differences between oil and gas and minerals. One of them specifically is, well, we need the minerals if we are going to do this transition. But what about what about some similarities that you saw with what happened with the shale revolution relative to what's happening now? Again, I'm just sort of thinking more about from a technology perspective is, is DLE or material science advances in batteries, are they, can they be thought of as sort of similarly potentially transformational as the shale revolution was to the oil and gas business? I mean, I can remember, I don't, I don't have the experience in oil and gas by any stretch of the imagination, but I just remember it was like Thanksgiving of 2014 and I was sitting in front of a Bloomberg and WTI, you know, looked like it was falling off of Niagara Falls or something like that. It, and a lot of it had to do with, okay, look, it seems like shale is now making a, a huge impact and is kind of the swing producer, if you will, uh, in the oil business. Again, I don't want to take us too far off track. Really, really what I'm asking you for is just your thoughts on what you saw during your time covering the shale revolution, the shale business, and what you're seeing today with respect to critical minerals. So I definitely see overlaps between a lot of the fracking technological developments in oil and gas that really help uh, underpin the U.S. oil boom um, with direct lithium extraction. Uh, and so there's there was a lot of um, experimentation on both sides that really helped fuel this this huge um, growth area. I think it's still too early to see if we can have complete parallels with DLE because, of course, it's never really worked commercially yet independently. Um, I think that'll happen in the very near future. Uh, and some of the people I chronicle in the book are pretty close to being able to do that. Um, but yes, in terms of having a massive technological advancement change a key part of the energy economy, I mean, there's definitely overlaps there. Um, the differences, I would say, uh, are, can be many, but um, you see how this is just lithium we're talking about right now. And uh, certainly oil, I think most people understand oil goes into a refinery and you out you get diesel or jet fuel or gasoline, etc. Um, but here we're not just talking about lithium, we're also talking about how do we get nickel and cobalt 
and copper and many other critical minerals that are crucial for a lot of these electronics. So it's not just one product at the end of the day. We're talking about multiple products and multiple ways to mine and process and bring to market them. Uh, And so I think that supply chains can be vastly more complex there uh, and thus requires more thinking through by the average consumer, by folks in government, by um, uh, manufacturers and many others to the, the broadening of the supply chain here it requires a lot more. I mean, uh, Volkswagen, Tesla, many other automakers have had to think about where they're going to buy lithium and copper and cobalt in a way that they never had to do thinking about where are we going to get plastics for um, uh, uh, car seats? You know, sure. um, yeah. So it's, it's it's a broadening of the supply chain and the broadening of the of the 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 mindset that you need to bring to these spaces. And speaking of broadening out the supply chain, and this again, maybe keeping in the the, uh, the idea of circularity, you talk about recycling in the book, yes. battery recycling specifically. Um, love to hear your comments on how impactful recycling could be, is, or could be sort of in the future with respect to using less material or, you know, how, I think it's still um, an open question, right, in terms of how impactful recycling will be, or maybe not how impactful, but by when will it have a material impact? I get questions from investors all the time. What is the forecast for recycled material in the supply chain by 2030? It's not that big, honestly. Now, 2035, 2040, different different ball game but um since you wrote a chapter on recycling i'd love to get your thoughts on you know the the impact there and again just kind of keeping in in the um along the theme of the role of technology sure the uh it was important for me to include a chapter in the book uh, on recycling because um i think a lot of folks increasingly understand that while crude oil or gasoline or whatever derivative thereof is burned off in an internal combustion engine a lot of these metals can be recycled if we can have an infrastructure that stood up um there's a lot of technical challenges that still remain there's also transportation challenges because when you transport a lot of lithium ion batteries the potential there is that they could explode and indeed i you know tell the story of, of that happening in the book um the this book looks at the history of J.B. Straubel and Redwood, as well as Ajay Kachar and Lifecycle, uh, two recycling companies that have taken different approaches to uh, their business models, um, and explores sort of what's going to take to get us to this idea of circularity uh, that, that Chris, you, a lot of your uh, contacts have been asking you about. You know, will we hit that in 2030 or 2050 or 2070? I think at this point, it's anybody's guess when we'll actually get there. And so I think the need for virgin or mined minerals is going to remain for some time. Um, But what we do know is that at some point, whenever that is, we'll probably reach a point where we won't need to dig more mines and we can recycle the batteries that are out there. I think that's many, many years out in the future. And it's going to require a lot of the kinks in the recycling um, ecosphere uh, to be ironed mm-hmm. out as it as it grows, um, and I think we need to have more consumers used to the idea of turning in old EV batteries or turning in old lithium ion batteries from any device. I mean, I'll confess this to your audience, Chris. Guilty as charged. I have a drawer full of old cell phones that's just sitting there. Uh, you may as well. Um, many of your yes. listeners may. Uh, and so to just multiply that just across the United States and just think about the potential uh, for all those metals and minerals that have been extracted out of the ground at high cost, uh, both financial and otherwise, uh, could not could they not be reused? Um, uh, one of the parts of the recycling chapter that I explore is that Apple, 
the big electronics manufacturer thinks that yes, they should be and has developed this huge robot to break apart iPhones into disparate parts for further recycling. So we introduce uh, the reader to this daisy robot, as Apple calls it, uh, in that chapter there. So I think there's a lot of potential and promise and manufacturers like Apple have the stated goal of getting rid of mining as we know it. Apple obviously has a lot of money behind its plans and a lot of uh, institutional know-how. Um, what that will take for everyone to fully get on board with this idea, I mean, I think we'll find out in the next, call it 30, 40, 50 years. One parallel that I do draw is around the idea of lead-acid battery recycling. Lead-acid batteries uh, power internal combustion engines right now. And it's been second nature for many, many years that if you have an internal combustion engine-powered vehicle, when that lead-acid battery gets to end of life, you just turn it in and buy a new one. And when you buy a new one, the co- there's a cost built in to the purchase of a new one that helps fund this entire unseen recycling infrastructure for lead-acid batteries. And so nearly all the component parts of a lead-acid battery are recycled and reused to be put back into the system. Could something like that happen with EV batteries? There's perhaps more complexities there that I think need to be working out, including around battery chemistry. Um, But I think the intention is there. And so if you build in some kind of charge, uh, financial charge, excuse me, (laughs) to an EV battery, um, you you could, uh, you know, further incentivize the creation of this recycling ecosphere. But there's a a lot of questions in that. uh, There's a lot of questions in that sentence. uh, And part of having this in the book was really helping the reader think through um, this idea. Because I got, as I was writing and reporting out the book, Chris, a lot of questions I got is, oh, why do we need mining? Can we just recycle our way there? And this chapter was my way of saying, well, no, not yet. And mm-hmm. maybe in the future, but here's what needs to happen in order to get there. Yeah, it's a, it's an economic, you know, um, consideration, I think, first and foremost, right? And again, yes. that comes back to that question earlier about China versus the US and what the optimal model is. Um, what about, uh, we've talked a little bit about the oil and gas place, space, excuse me. Um, did, you, did you have a lot of conversations with folks in the oil and gas and plastics business? I mean, what is their, what is their view on this energy transition? I feel like, you know, maybe underneath the surface, there's a lot of sort of skepticism and their accusations of sort of greenwashing and mm. oil and gas players getting involved in critical mineral supply chain just, just because. You know, I mean, I think it's we've always talked about this, right? I mean, lithium in particular is is a tiny blip relative to the oil and gas business from a from a revenue cash flow perspective. And so, you know, it's sort of a very low risk, uh, high visibility way for the exons of the world to get involved in in lithium, just to use that as an example. But um, just curious, did you have a lot of conversations with folks in the oil and gas business? I mean, what are they what is kind of their view on this transition? Are they, is it a mortal threat or is it just something like, okay, we'll, we'll partake and try and clean up our own business? Yeah, I think there's definitely a curiosity among many in oil and gas to the critical mineral space. Um, and I've, I've gotten a lot of uh, uh, plaudits, I guess, for the book from folks in the industry that are curious to learn more, uh, which has been great to hear. The um, oil and gas industry has a very intertwined history, though, with with mining. You know, many of the projects I talk about in the book actually used to be owned by Chevron, for instance. Uh, Mountain Pass, the mine in California, that's the rare earth mine. Chevron owned it at one point. Uh, Chevron also used to own the Thacker Pass site in northern Nevada that is now being developed by Lithium Americas and General Motors. Um, Those are just sort of two examples from the book. Um, So there's definitely... A shared history here between a lot of them. Exxon getting into lithium now, as as you mentioned, um, you know, and 
what I hope folks think through with the book, and I tried to paint this, is it perhaps won't just be a complete change of an entire petroleum-based economy to a materials-based economy. Like there's going to be some some bleeding in on both sides here. And I think that um, we'll start to see how that shakes out in the coming years. Um, But it it was important for me to explore areas of the economy beyond transportation that will be affected by this. I mean, certainly I think internal combustion engines will be here for a a pretty good chunk of time further. Um, But I have a chapter in the book on leaf blowers for instance, which sounds sort of like silly and innocuous. But for me, it was important to get a sort of common household device that is increasingly going electric uh, and sort of talk about it. So the the quick background is I got a house a few years ago and um, as part of the uh, lawn care maintenance, decided to go all suburban and do it myself. And so I got uh, an electric lawnmower and an electric weed whacker, and, and yes, an electric leaf blower, uh, right around the time that I was writing this book. And that led me down a rabbit hole because I got curious. I was like, okay, it's bad for the environment to have a two-stroke engine-powered leaf blower. So if I go electric, where did the copper come from in this lithium-ion battery? And where did the cobalt come from and the nickel and the other critical minerals? And and Chris, I got to tell you, I got a lot of resources at my disposal working at Reuters and my day job and, and other uh, great contacts like yourself in the space that I can reach out to from time to time. And I could not figure out where these lithium and copper and other critical minerals came (laughs) from in this battery. And I went down a lot of rabbit holes. Um, And so you just take that one lowly device, the leaf blower, and you sort of extrapolate across these millions of electronic devices that we're using every single day. Uh, And then that sort of really brings up deep-seated questions about sourcing and about ESG standards and about you know, how we actually hope to get these building blocks for our everyday lives. I enjoyed that chapter because you mentioned there's a sentence in the chapter where you state that I believe in Washington, D.C., gas-powered leaf blowers are banned. They are. Which I can, un- I can unfortunately confirm for you. Not unfortunately, but I can confirm that, um, you know, there, there is a difference um, in gas-powered versus, versus battery-powered in, in a lot of different ways. So anyways, that was that that hit close to home. Um, listen, next next question, just more broadly on the book. I know I'm sort of asking asking you to tell me, you know, which which kid is your favorite. But um, <laughs> what was your favorite chapter to write? Ah, uh, gosh, you know, I, I enjoyed the or whole. Do thing. you have one? Uh, yeah, gosh, I mean, in 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 terms of. You know, I mean, the reporting and writing out the book, reporting out the book, led me to some places. Um, in the United States and outside the United States um, that really got me to see firsthand and, and paint for the reader um, a sense of not only place, but people that were there. And uh, for three or four chapters, I drove across much of Nevada and then up into Oregon and Idaho uh, for the book. And so there's three or four chapters there that I really enjoyed um, sort of just being out in the Western United States meeting people for and against a lot of these projects, um, including at Thacker Pass in northern mm-hmm. Nevada, where I spent the night, actually, I camped out there um, with a gentleman who is strongly opposed to this uh, lithium project that's being developed uh, there. Um, and so really seeing the place through his eyes um, and and experiencing it there, I think, helped form a core part of the narrative. And for me, that that made this more of a human story, which I was really angling for rather than a, a book about um, uh, a geology or investing. Um, sure. Because um, that, that was sort of my North star here, if you will. So the ability to actually get out and, 
and meet people on on the ground and sort of uh, tell their stories uh, for me was the the best part or the the most fun I would say here of the entire project human humanizes it for yes, sure yeah and look I know as a journalist you're not supposed to have opinions necessarily or you're not supposed to make them sort of you're supposed to be as I think neutral as you possibly can but in the writing of this book did you have any any sort of preconceived ideas or did you have any opinions that changed over the course of the book so, I mean, look, with a book, you can have a little more leeway, I guess, than perhaps in daily journalism. But for me, mm-hmm. it was important to remove myself and be a mirror almost uh, for the audience to think through these complex issues. And um, Or maybe maybe a better way to say that, sorry, is there anything that surprised you? Um, well, I mean, I think um, a big thing that... Um, I don't know if surprise is the right word, but underscored to me the more I reported this out is that too often, especially in our current political climate, I think we're used to just it being one side versus another. And what you discover in the war below is that it, there's rarely one side versus the other. There's usually a third or fourth or fifth side, and they all are coming at this from very different approaches and different angles. Um, and in fact, it actually was a challenge in the writing to sort of trim this down. You know, there's about another hundred pages this book could have been. Um, mm-hmm. But at, at some point, you have to, you know, submit a manuscript to your publisher. Funny you mentioned that. I thought this could have been a 600-page book, no problem. You know, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It, 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 yeah, there there were multiple, unfortunately, multiple uh, parts that we were not able to include just due to sheer length limitations. Um, but the, the the multifaceted side of this thing, you know, I mentioned resolution. You know, it's not just a mining company versus an indigenous rights organization. It's also the local community, the businesses in that community. Uh, you've got the policymakers in D.C. You've got many other voices there that are part of that conversation. Um, and that adds to the complexity. I recognize that. But I wanted to bring that to the reader to say, hey, like, this is an area that I found intriguing and that you need to be thinking through more because these are issues that affect all of us. So I would say I don't know if it was a surprise as much as something that I was like, yeah, this is something that perhaps I hadn't fully thought through. And I have discovered it and want to bring it to the reader. What advice? I mean, so you, so you've got a book under your belt now. It's terrific. Again, everyone needs to read this book. W- what advice would you have for other aspiring authors or aspiring journalists, given your career and now that you've got you now this book out there in the wild? Oh, that's a good question, Chris. Um, be curious. Um, you know, the world is is um very complex, but um, just a, a fascinating space to go explore and uh, to learn and to meet really interesting people. Everyone's interesting and everyone has a story to tell and everyone's involved in something they're passionate about. Um, And so if you really take the time to listen and to be curious, I think you'd be surprised what you learn sometimes. Excellent. Excellent. Well, I want to end uh, with, with one final question. Again, just reading from the book, this is the chapter called A Longing. Page 95, as my time in Ili ended, I drove to the Stony Ridge Cafe, which sits on the edge of Shagawa Lake and serves more than 50 different types of hamburgers. I had the Norseman Burger, which features a mango habanero glaze, triple smoked bacon, pineapple rings, and Munster cheese. Was that your favorite, or was there another one there? Uh, I gotta say, it was an amazing burger. They, as that paragraph says, had a lot to choose from. It was this... Um, wooden building right on a hill overlooking this beautiful lake. It was like very iconic, like Northern Minnesota or Northern United States in a rural area. 
I grew up in Maine, so like I, I immediately like lobbed on to the the physicality of this structure, and uh, you know the the staff were great, and I told them what I was in town for that I was writing this book, and uh, I spent uh, you know a few days there actually. So I'd actually this was did not make it in the final cut, but this was one of multiple times I went to the Stony Ridge Cafe. So you um, had multiple burgers. I okay. did, yeah, and I will say the Norseman Burger. <laughs> It was amazing. Well, the main thing that I remember is just how, um, uh, shall we say, sauce-filled it was. I just remember having to go <laughs> and uh, find like a towel or something immediately afterwards. It, like the best possible way, right? As a good burger should be, you know, and it, uh, a tactile experience. Um, so if you're ever in, uh, uh, in that northern Minnesota region, I highly recommend you or the audience to go to the Stony Ridge Cafe. Excellent. It's on It's on the list as a burger connoisseur, I can tell you. Um, all right, listen, thank you very much for, for you know, taking the time. I know you're sort of in demand, and I think you're doing a lot of these, these interviews, so I appreciate the opportunity. I know the listeners do, too. How can um, people get in touch with you or follow you on social media from, from this point? Well, Chris, thank you for your time and interest. And I got to say to your audience that uh, Chris Berry is the man and the expert here, and he and I have been oh, connected for... For, for many, many, many years. Uh, so always appreciate his wisdom and insight. Uh, I am on Twitter, uh, now known as X, I suppose, uh, LinkedIn, um, um, Instagram, and many other social medias. Ernest Scheider, uh, please find me there. Uh, the book, The War Below, Lithium, Copper, and the Global Battle to Power Our Lives is wherever you buy your books, whether at booksellers or online retailers would please welcome uh, your, your reading of it and and sharing your thoughts with me on it. I mean, I've written this for everyone because it's a topic that affects everyone and I'm excited to continue the conversation. That's great. And it's a terrific book again. Well, thank you so much for your time. Great to be with you, Chris. This episode of The Power Current with Chris Berry is not to be used as investment advice. It is for informational purposes only. The Power Current, its parent company, Clear Commodity Network, our guests and affiliates are not responsible for any loss arising from any investment decisions. Please speak to a licensed financial advisor before making any investment decisions.